Good morning, friend. Hope you're doing well. It is October 2nd, another crazy and somewhat disappointing day of college football yesterday. Hope your team won. But we watched a lot of games, and none of them ended the way we wanted them to, so <laughs> it's kind of crazy yesterday. Anyway, we're going to be a beautiful Sunday out here on the river, and I hope that wherever you are, things are going well. But I'm hearing from a lot of folks that they're dealing with anxiety. There's a lot of stressful things happening. And so I just want to Take a, a few minutes this morning to address the issue of constantly being worried and kind of what do we do? How do we how do we deal with that? Brene Brown, the famous social worker, psychologist, TED Talker, writer, talks about how we sometimes end up living anxiety as a lifestyle. And and there's a there's an important kind of psychological understanding that we can live in a constant state of anxiety, but we don't have to. And sometimes our lives bring us a constant plate of things to worry about, real things that are stressful and difficult, and sometimes we have to learn how to deal with them, and those things can produce anxiety, but sometimes we have maybe a season of relative peace where there's really not anything serious going on, and we still deal with anxiety and stress, and so there's 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 two sides of the coin where, where we have real stuff happening in our lives that are hard and difficult, and how do we manage that and try to find peace and joy and purpose and meaning and, and comfort and even happiness in the midst of those real hard things, and at the same time, there's sometimes when there's, there's really not a whole lot going on, but we still deal with the same mental baggage, anxiety, stress, depression, and difficulty in, in the reality is we have to learn how not to live anxiety as a lifestyle regardless of the circumstances that we're going through. And my friend John Swanson on this blog, 300 Words a Day, which I've mentioned to you many times before, just this past week wrote a blog. He'd actually written it a few years before, but he brought it back. And he's talking about the scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul writes this. He says, starting in verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. The contemporary English translation says, I want you to know what a hard time we had in Asia. Our sufferings were so horrible and so unbearable that death seemed certain. In the English Standard Version, he says, we despaired of life itself. That They were going through such a hard time that they wished they weren't even alive. They were afraid they weren't going to make it, and they just were almost ready to give up. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received a death sentence. We were sure we were going to die. And here's the important part. Here's the but, okay? Here's the but. We thought we were going to die. We despaired of life itself in verse 9. But this made us stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting God who raises the dead to life. God saved us from the threat of death, and we are sure that he will do it again and again. You see what he's doing here? He's flexing the muscles of hope. I've talked to you a million times about how hope is a verb. And we can either choose to give up and despair, or we can say, wait a minute, time out. I'm going to biopsy that thought. I'm going to recognize that I'm feeling anxiety. And I can choose either to give in to the anxiety and go down all these infinite rabbit holes of what ifs and worst case scenarios, or I can do self-brain surgery right here. And I can remember, I can use memory, the two component parts of hope, remember, are memory and movement. And memory is, for a guy like Paul, he's been through a lot. He's been shipwrecked. He's been imprisoned. He's been stoned. He's been chronically poor. He's been attacked and lied about. And his enemies have said things that were untrue that got him arrested. He's been threatened and whipped and and snake bitten and all kinds of bad things have happened to him over and over and over again. But guess what? He's still breathing. He's still writing. He's still alive. And God's still got a mission and a purpose for him. So here's what he says. He remembers. 
But this made us stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting God who raises the dead to life. So remember, if, if it seems impossible, you have a God who raises dead people from the life, to back to life. You have a God who does impossible things routinely. It's part of his playbook. He does impossible things. So no matter how much trouble you're in, he can raise you back to life. So God saved us from the threat of death, and we are sure that he will do it again and again. That's movement. We're going to move forward. We're going to press in because we have this God who does impossible things, who's on our side. He's done it before. He's done it a million times before. And we're just going to be certain that he's going to do it again. And then here's the next part. He brings in the power of community. Please help us by praying for us. There, Then many people will give thanks for the blessings we receive, we receive in answer to all these prayers. See what they're doing? They're saying, wait a minute, I'm going to rely on God. I'm going to remember what he's done. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to ask other people to pray for me, and I'm going to use that to tell a better story with my life. Then many people will give thanks for the blessings we receive in answer to all these prayers. My friend Philip Yancey has written that sometimes the only comfort you can take in your suffering is that other people are comforted by your suffering. Let that sink in for a minute. Sometimes you're going through something hard, and you don't understand why. But you can know that if you do what Paul did here, tell a better story. Tell a better story. Hold on and know that God's going to get you through it. And when he does, you can use that to encourage other people so they can press through the darkness of their own trouble, right? That's telling a better story. Sometimes the only comfort you can take in your suffering is that other people can take comfort in your suffering. Amazing, right? So here's what John said. Paul was writing to some friends in a church he knew. He was letting them know about some of his own pain in a moment when we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. John says, I'm not glad for Paul's pain, but I am grateful for his honesty in describing the feeling. Here, see, 2,000 years later, John Swanson is is telling the story of how Paul came through that, and he's reflecting the, the, the grace and the, and the presence of God in those difficult moments and how we can take comfort in that again, still this day. In these moments, John says, they are feeling crushed by the accumulation of catastrophe, you ever felt that? Are you crushed by the accumulation of catastrophe? Since 2020, the world has been. Nurses dealing with COVID, doctors in hospitals overwhelmed, patients and, and people all over the place like Arthur Moy's family losing family members. There's been a global economic shutdown, a government that's turned over. Maybe you don't like the politicians that got elected. Maybe it's not going the way you thought it would. Maybe you're overwhelmed by gas prices and inflation or whatever. There's been an accumulation of catastrophe. In my world, it's always a trauma, an accident, a tumor, a bad diagnosis, a difficult outcome for somebody to deal with. And there's people listening to this right now that are dealing with hard medical things, hard financial things, hard relational things. We have a family member who's going through an impossible relationship situation. The accumulation of catastrophe. And here's what John says. What's remarkable in Paul's account is that he doesn't offer details. He doesn't tell us in this moment why he's despairing of life itself. He doesn't tell us what happened or what illness he was fighting. Because of his language, we don't know whether he was facing a literal death sentence issued in a court of law or a metaphorical death sentence issued by a doctor. All we know is that he sensed he was about to die, and he couldn't find the strength to survive. So what happens next? And that's the question for you today, friend. What happens next when you're in that situation? 
And in Paul's case, John says, what happens next is God. God gives him strength, and in Paul's words, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He's remembering, and he's moving. He's flexing the muscles of hope. So why is he telling his friends about this, Paul says, or John says? Because Paul attributes their prayers to God's actions. Because he attributes to their prayer... God's actions. John says, I don't understand the math of this, how much prayer of what kind leads to what deliverance. I'm not sure. I am sure that it isn't math. Instead, Paul is making it clear that, listen to this, friend. John says, Paul is making it clear that pain isn't always because of wrongdoing, and relief sometimes comes from requests being made of God. So get that Get that through your head. My dad would snap his fingers and say, look in my eyes. Get this through your head, friend. (laughs) That's what my dad would have said when I was a boy. Get this through your head, Lee. Listen, pain isn't always because of wrongdoing. So part of your anxiety is that you think that the circumstances happening to you are always because you're sinning or doing something wrong or why can't these people ever do anything right? It's it's not always because of that. Sometimes it's just, it just is. Sometimes you just have pain because life is hard. Jesus promised you in John 16, 33 that life was going to be hard. But the flip side of that coin is that God cares. He will get up out of his chair to help you, Isaiah says. I will rise to show you compassion, right? He cares. Psalm thirty-four, eighteen promises us that God is with the brokenhearted. He longs to be gracious to you, friend. And sometimes relief comes from prayer. To this little story that Paul's telling, and thank you, John, for bringing it back to us. A little story. That, John, that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11 is the secret to dealing with anxiety. When you're dealing with real hard things, or even when you're just in a time of wondering why everything feels so hard, even if it's not actually a circumstance that's so particularly hard, the secret is remembering that he's done it before, that he's the God who can raise people from the dead, so there's nothing, literally nothing that's impossible for him, and that he'll do it again, and that when he does... Other people will be encouraged by the story of how he got you through it. And it's okay to ask other people to pray. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to talk about what you're feeling, and you need to. I'm going to play an old episode now, and then I'm going to play, I'm going to play an old episode about anxiety as a lifestyle. We talked about Brene Brown, and we talked about my, my work in this book that I'm someday going to write called Infinitely Happier. I started it, I was going to write Infinitely Happier, and it turned into Hope is the First Dose. (laughs) Just like last time when I was writing, I've seen the end of you, it turned into No Place to Hide, and then I wrote I've seen the end of you later. This time I started Infinitely Happier, and it turned out to be Hope is the First Dose, and I think it's going to be extremely powerful what God's going to do with that book. And someday I'm still going to write Infinitely Happier. It's going to happen. But so in this in this episode, I was talking about the thought process behind what I'm going to write and what I intended to write is a book called Infinitely Happier. And after that, after we play this episode, it's going to help you get some, get some tools developed to not live anxiety as a lifestyle. Then I'm going to play Tommy Walker's song, I Will Not Be Shaken. Because you need some prehab, you need some music, you need some thoughts, you need some good books, you need some scripture in your head and in your heart to use as weapons when you encounter these difficult situations so that you can do what Paul did and you can call on things that are true when everything feels overwhelming. The truth is, even if you're in a boat in the sea and the storm is raging, you still have the Prince of Peace right there who can say, peace be still. And you can learn in the midst of the storm how to call on somebody who's bigger than the storm. You can, and that's the secret to learning how not to live anxiety as a lifestyle. But the most important thing you can do, my friend, in the midst of all that, 
start today. I'm always telling you, you can't change your life until you change your mind. The whole sort of outline of this podcast is about the fact from neuroscience and the fact from faith that how we think affects how we live. And this isn't just some positive thinking podcast. It's actually the fact that you make better decisions, you you form better relationships, you make uh, better progress in your life, and you feel happier and you have a more abundant life when you think better thoughts. And, and so there's tools that I call self-brain surgery techniques to help you learn how to do that. And the whole deal with Infinitely Happier is that there was a book a few years ago called 10% Happier that basically the premise was if you learn how to meditate and sort of slow your thinking down and and process things before you react to them, that you can be about 10% happier. That's what Dan Harris wrote. And I think if you add the underpinnings of of how we're designed, which I believe is a spiritual life, um, if you add that in, then you don't have to settle for being 10% happier. You can be a lot happier. You might even be infinitely happier. Listen, life is not brain surgery. It's, It's harder than brain surgery. I can actually teach you most people, I think, I could teach to do a lot of the things that we do in brain surgery. You can learn that by repetition, by good training, by practice. But life, you got to sort of live life to get good at it. Fortunately, though, you can get help from other people and people, and you can learn from other people's mistakes and guidance. And we can get better at life by talking about it, studying it, and, and working at it. But ultimately, we just got to live it. And so I'm here to hopefully, over the next few weeks, give you some framework that we're going to build this infinitely happier idea around. Dr. Brene Brown is a famous uh, social worker, writer, uh, lecturer. She's done a TED Talk that got a lot of traction, and she's written a lot of really, really good books. And Brene Brown has a series of what she calls guideposts for wholehearted living. Um, by the way, she did a Netflix special called The Call to Courage. And if you're stuck at home and you don't have much else to do, The Call to Courage on Netflix by Brene Brown is really worth watching. It's, it's an outstanding series, uh, uh, outstanding lecture that she gave. And it's very helpful. The only thing I don't like, um, is that she uses some kind of strong language in her talk. It's really unnecessary. Um, and some people find it offensive and therefore they'll turn it off and not listen to what she has to say. So don't, don't write me and say I recommended something that had bad language in it. So, I'm not telling you that I approve of the language. I'm just telling you that it's there, but the show is worth watching. It's good, it's useful, and you should watch it. Um, So go watch it. Brene Brown's Call to Courage on Netflix. One of the things that Brene Brown writes about is something that she calls cultivating calm and stillness and letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle. Can you imagine anxiety as a lifestyle? I think right now there's probably a lot of us that are living some of that. Everybody's stuck at home. They're not sure what the future looks like. Some people have been laid off or lost their jobs or their companies have closed. And they don't know what's going to happen post-COVID-19. So there's a lot of anxiety as a lifestyle happening right now, I guarantee you. Now, I read about um, anxiety from a mental health expert online, and he said, anxiety is not a disease. It's not an illness. It's not a biological condition you inherit or contract. It's also not a result of a chemical imbalance or a biological problem in the brain. Anxiety is a condition that we cause. Anxiety only lingers when we don't understand or know how to reverse it. Now, obviously, there are some medical disorders that cause anxiety, so I don't agree with that completely. But it is true that anxiety is something that we can often manage ourselves and sometimes take care of ourselves by changing how we think about it. So how do we approach the task of reclaiming our life 
from the grips of anxiety. Now, Brene Brown suggests cultivating calm and stillness. Now, I found a great article about Brene Brown's guidepost from a lady named Erica Diosa on her blog. um, I'll put a link to her blog in the show notes because it's a really good article about this particular guidepost from Brene Brown. And she said this, when a busy, overscheduled person hears the suggestion to be calm and find stillness, chances are they think of sitting in a room doing nothing, being absolutely bored out of their mind. I agree with that. You know, people think about meditation and prayer and they think, gosh, it just means you're sitting there being quiet and it's boring and all of that, blah, blah, blah. It's not true. Dr. Brown defines and helps to clarify what calm and stillness actually look like. Here's what she said. Calm is about creating perspective and mindfulness while managing emotional reactivity. It's about being able to take a step back from the situation see all the variables, and be able to self-talk your way through every situation with realistic and grounded thinking. Stillness is not about focusing on nothingness. It's about creating a clearing. It's about opening up an emotionally chatter-free space, allowing ourselves to feel and think and dream and question. Stillness is about finding space for yourself and all the busyness. It's about carving out a peaceful space where you can reflect, engage your creativity, and process your thoughts. Awareness of self and of our thoughts can be life-changing if we can work up the courage to confront them. Now, this guidepost really ties into what I'm thinking and writing about lately, this burr under the saddle that's making me need to write this book infinitely happier because I think people really could have better lives if they changed how they think. That's why I'm always saying you can't change your life until you change your mind. In fact, in the Bible... Uh, there's a new translation recently came out called the Passion Translation. And Proverbs 17.27 says this, Can you bridle your tongue when your heart is under pressure? That's how you show that you're wise. An understanding heart keeps you cool, calm, and collected no matter what you're facing. That's really what we're getting at, folks. That's really what we're getting at, my friend, is the idea that we want to be able to have a life where we can manage ourselves and find peace, find joy, find happiness, stay calm, stay collected, no matter what we go through, because life's going to bring some hard stuff. So if we want to learn how to be infinitely happier, we have to learn how to manage what we know is coming. We have to be prepared and be able to respond and not just react like wild animals when we get surprised by the hard things in life. I want you to learn how to be infinitely happier, my friend. That's my entire goal for this podcast, for my books and everything. It's for you to find your path in life. I believe there's a spiritual component to that that's going to make it all even better. And I want you to get there starting today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. 
I'm a neurosurgeon and author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you'd like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Hey, you remember what Dr. Brown said about stillness? Let me read it to you again. She said, stillness is not about focusing on nothingness. It's about creating a clearing. It's opening up an emotionally chatter-free space, allowing ourselves to feel and think and dream and question. Brene Brown said that. That little space is the entire goal, by the way, of Eastern meditation. And when we think about meditation, we think about some monk sitting somewhere, you know, trying to still his mind and be calm and, and uh, all that sort of weird stuff that Westerners don't, don't really understand. All they're trying to do in Eastern meditation, it's not a spiritual thing. It's a mind control thing. It's, it's trying to learn how to put a little gap between the stimulus that life brings us, challenges, thoughts, difficulties, etc., and the response to that stimulus. Learning to pause before you react, to think before you speak, to bridle your tongue, like the proverb said, to be able to process and think through before you respond. That's what Eastern meditation is about, calming your mind and creating that space. Now, I've talked a lot about how this really, in in a very real sense, is much like learning how to do surgery on your own brain, like changing the patterns, the synapses, the automatic responses that happen. You can learn to do that, and it's basically like doing surgery, doing self-brain surgery. There's something that I call the bad thought biopsy. In fact, you should go back to um, my episode um, about the the, uh, thought biopsies. There's an episode called Thought Biopsies, Goalposts, and Patch Base. And in this, I describe the technique um, of how to do the thought biopsy. And there's another episode, The Neuroscience of Happiness. That's episode nine. And I give you five different self-brain surgery techniques. All of these will be in the book, much more flushed out. But the bad thought biopsy is what I, is what I call it, with this idea of when I look at an MRI, of your brain and there's something going on there. I can't know for sure what I'm seeing just because I see a picture of it. I don't know for sure that it's a tumor and not an infection or or just some scar tissue or something. I need a biopsy of it. I need to take a piece of that tissue that I'm seeing on the on the screen and actually get a piece of it and look at it under the microscope and identify what it actually is before I take action. Because if I see a spot on your MRI and I just take you to surgery and cut your head open and dig around in your brain, it may turn out that you didn't need that big operation. If I had just done a little biopsy first, I might have prevented you from needing something done, from having something done that you didn't need. Now, the idea is that surgeons have to have tissue to understand what the issue is. And happy people learn that they can't believe every thought that pops into their heads and react to those thoughts. Happy people learn how, as Daniel Amen says, to think about their thinking. Max Lucado says, just because you have a thought doesn't mean you have to think it. Neuroscience has proven that negative connections are approximately five times more memorable than positive ones. And this, my friend, is why you can remember the one time your mom called you an idiot instead of the thousand times that she said how smart you are. 
You can. You can still remember where you were standing when a parent or a loved one or a spouse or somebody said something negative to you. You can remember the emotion around that when you were a little kid. You can. And the reason you can is because negative experiences are hardwired much more powerfully than positive experiences are. We've talked about how that's a protective mechanism. It keeps you from touching the hot stove more than once and all of that. But so the first step in learning how to manage our minds is to recognize that not every thought we have is valid, helpful, true, or worthy of a response, even an emotional response. Not every thought that you have is actually right. Now, when your brain says, I'm a loser, for example, note that. Take a look at it. Look at it rationally and discern whether you're thinking about it from an emotional place that's colored by your big brothers or your ex-spouse's mean name-calling or whether it's actually something real that you need to work on. Now, happy people have learned how to think about those thoughts instead of just knee-jerk reacting to them. If you work all day tomorrow on thinking about every negative thought before you react to it, then by the end of the day, you'll be much more aware of the nature and frequency of harmful thinking in your brain. Now, how often do we find ourselves far down a path of listening to worrisome thoughts without ever stopping to question if the thought itself was worthy of an emotional reaction? Think about that for a minute. Everybody has negative thoughts. They're like the ants that show up on the counter no matter how hard you try to keep things clean in your kitchen. Daniel Amen, the famous psychiatrist friend of mine, calls these automatic negative thoughts or ants. His powerful book, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, is worth reading. You should actually read it if you want to know more about how your thinking impacts your life. I can't recommend it highly enough. It should be considered a textbook if you want to change your life. But by thinking about our thinking, we'll gain more discernment about when to actually engage certain lines of thought and when to discard them altogether. Now, Guy Winch is a TED Talker, a famous, uh, pretty famous psychologist. He's been on the podcast before. He calls this idea sort of mental hygiene, like learning how to work through the things that you're thinking about and process them in a healthy way. But these automatic negative thoughts, these ants, they're tricky. They have a weight to them that make them seem accurate and real, like monsters under the bed to an eight-year-old. And those ants can be so scary that they can paralyze us. They can ruin our lives if we don't learn how to manage them. But not to worry, because the bad thought biopsy, what Brene Brown called creating that chatter-free space, that'll set you free from reacting to every ant that pops into your head. When an ant pops into your head, biopsy it. When you have that negative thought, when you have a racing thought, when you're catastrophizing, when you're worried about everything... Biopsy it for a second. When your mind tells you, I'll never be able to do this, I want you to say out loud, wow, that was a really negative thought. I need to rephrase that more positively. Here's an example. You have a thought that pops into your head that says something like this, I'm never going to be able to lose this weight. Your response could be, wow, hey, that was a really negative way to look at that. The truth is, if I'm more careful about my diet today, if I choose to exercise instead of sitting on the couch, I'll actually make a little progress on my weight goal. And if I put a bunch of those days together, I'll lose some weight. You see the difference? One is is uh, neutering and one is empowering. One is harmful and one is helpful. When we learn to take that thought and spin it around and look at it objectively, two things happen. One, you start seeing possibilities where before you only saw defeat. And number two, your brain's blood flow and your chemistry actually changes in a positive way. That's true. And guess what that does? 
everything you look at, everything you think about for the rest of the day will start off from a little healthier place. You're improving your baseline of how you approach things. So today, if you look for those ants, if you look for the negative thinking that pops in automatically, you'll see what a little positive spinning does to them. If you keep practicing, then soon you'll adopt this phrase. I used to be a negative person, but my brain surgeon changed my mind. That's a little inside neurosurgery joke. Look, here's the deal. The science keeps proving and pointing us toward what God's been saying all along. John sixteen thirty three. my paraphrase says this, life is hard and you're going to have trouble, so be ready for it. We know that when things do get hard, it will produce harmful chemical changes in our brain and physical changes in our bodies. Anxiety, depression, fear, all those things hurt your physical body as well as your mental state. So it's critical to learn how to deal with the anxiety of being afraid of everything that you can't control by giving it to somebody who can control it, giving it up to God, or if you're not a spiritual person, learning another way to manage it. Now, here's a little toolkit, some verses, some scripture to preload into your brain and heart that will help you combat the automatic anxiety-producing thoughts that tough circumstances cause. Now, as a disclaimer, I'm an outspoken Christian, as you know, and I use scripture verses, Bible, to fill up my brain and my heart so I have some ammunition to shoot at these negative thoughts. Scripture's helpful to me in that regard. In fact, the Bible says it's helpful in that regard to help calm your mind. And to prepare your heart for those challenges that life brings along. If you're not a spiritual person, you need to have some other type of ammunition, though, that you use to prepare for these hard things. Other writings, sacred writings, philosophy, uh, other things that you've read, um, some plans in your brain, you need to have some ammunition to shoot at these negative thoughts. Now, since I'm a person who uses scripture for that, I'm really grateful that my parents taught me that and showed me that way to arm myself with this armor of, of God's word. And since I use that, I'm going to give you some of the verses that I use, and hopefully you'll find them helpful. If you remember, memorize these, if you put them in your heart, write them down, stick them in your pocket, use them when life gets hard. This is just a little toolkit that you can use to preload that calm, that space that we're looking for, that, that chatter-free zone that Brene Brown talked about. So here's some of the verses that I use. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So when I'm feeling anxious, I talk to God about it. Matthew 6, 25 and 27 says this, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body or what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Now think about that one right now. We're all stuck inside this COVID-19 thing's going on. None of us can control it. We can't control what the governments do. We can't control when you get to go back to work or when life gets back to normal. So worrying about it can't fix it. And you'll let your brain get worse. You'll let your heart get worse if you sit there and focus on all that negative stuff. So you got to think about better things. Matthew 6.34 says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Another version says, Every day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 11.28-30 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John fourteen twenty seven, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you. Psalm 55.22, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer with thanksgiving, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. And finally, my favorite verse about why we use scripture to help us in life, Proverbs twelve twenty five: anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Now listen, again, you don't have to use scripture, but you've got to have something that you've got ready in your heart when life brings you a challenge, when those negative thoughts pop in. You've got to have something to throw back at them, and scripture works for me. By the way, this uh, Proverbs twelve twenty five verse, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. That's why I'm called to write. Right there. That's it. I'm here to bring you the good word, to remind you not to be anxious, to help you when it's hard. That's the whole reason I'm doing this podcast, to bring you that good word. So how do we cultivate calm? Going back to Brene Brown's idea. Again, I say, do what the Bible says. Preload your thinking with the right answers to whatever is going to pop up. It's like studying for a test. We, we arm our brains to be ready for whatever comes along so that we're ready with the right thoughts and the answers to pre-protect our neurochemistry. So if you know that hard things are going to happen, you prepare, you, you, you get ready. There's a book um, called Never Split the Difference by an FBI hostage negotiator named Chris Voss. I've talked about him before on the podcast. That'd be a good interview too, wouldn't it, by the way? But this book, um, Chris Voss says um, a sentence, a, a line that's become kind of a mantra for me. He says, when the pressure's on, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to your highest level of preparation. So that's what I'm getting at. We're preparing. We're, we're preparing for the hard stuff, for when the pressure's on. Psalm 23, 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice this. David, the guy who wrote that, he wrote it before he was in the valley of the shadow of death. He was preparing his heart for what happens. So when he says to himself, okay, even if I end up walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to be afraid. He's preloading his heart to keep his faith up when the hard times come because he knows he's going to get there eventually, right? Hebrews 13, 13, 6 says, We can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Couple more. Isaiah forty three, one through three. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God. And Luke twenty one, fourteen and fifteen and eighteen and nineteen. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Listen, friend, again, this isn't a sermon. I'm giving you some scripture that you can use, but you could also use some other things. I think scripture is better. But the point is you've got to be prepared. You've got to make up your mind 
beforehand, that you're not going to give in to anxiety, fear, worry, negative thinking, all of that, because life is going to bring you challenges. So if you want to succeed, if you want to win life, you got to stand firm. And the secret to that is preloading, to be prepared, to create that chatter-free space. I think the biggest distinction between the pure meditators who are trying to tune out the world's noise and find calm and stillness and silence and between those and Christians who want something bigger and better to find in the silence is this. Spiritual meditation isn't about trying to hear nothing. Eastern meditation is. It's about trying to hear nothing so you can control what you think about. Spiritual meditation is about trying to hear the only thing that can really help. And stillness isn't about trying to calm ourselves down. It's about slowing down enough to know that we're safe in God's care and that we can rest there. Anxiety isn't a real thing. It's not a disease. It's a physiological response to what we're thinking about and how we allow ourselves to respond. It's not a disease in and of itself. Now, Again, as a medical disclaimer, as a physician, there are some people who have anxiety disorders that are so out of hand that they need medical help. And if you're having a hard time with anxiety and you can't get it under control, don't self-medicate, don't use alcohol, don't you know take uh, bad behaviors to try to calm your anxiety. Go see your doctor. They really can help. So don't hear me saying that. Go see your doctor if you're struggling with anxiety and if you can't get it under control. But I want you to remember that many times we can get it under control. And since we know that we can control our physiology by changing our thought patterns, we need to bathe ourselves in words that will help and have them ready as ammunition to shoot at these problems when they inevitably arise. And I believe Scripture helps with that more than anything else in my experience. So cultivate calm. Reject the lifestyle of anxiety. Preload your thinking, and you'll offload your anxiety. This is self-brain surgery. This is how we get to the place where we can become infinitely happier. We're going to talk a lot more about this in coming episodes. It's biblical. It's consistent with neuroscience. It's good self-care. It's self-brain surgery, and it will help you. But if you want it to help you, you have to start today. He is my rock, my shield, my fortress. He's my salvation and my strength. The cords of death, they were surrounding me, but he heard my cry for help. He is my refuge, my high tower, he's my
Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.